because, you know, the RSV, I am my father's son, and so I use the revised standard version like he does. The RSV uses steadfastness all over it, like more than 200 times. Um, but you look at the, the NIV, it's used 10 times, and you look at the King James Version, and it's, it's, on, it's not even used once. Um, and I think the King James Version sometimes translates the, the same concept as like enduring mercy. But to me, that, that doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, and the RSV translators, that having used this, this concept in English of steadfastness um, f- and seeing it throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it seems like there's, there's a theme there. And when you think of it as stead- steadfastness as sort of an affirmative virtue and not sort of a, a defensive enduring against trial, it's something that it allows you to think of your own Christian walk as something that is an affirmative battle and not just a defensive one being steadfast rather than just resisting trial. So I think we can learn something from studying it. When, when the RSV uses steadfast throughout the Old Testament, um, it's most often in reference to God's steadfastness. Um, typically, his steadfast love, it's a, it's a phrase that appear, appears over and over again. It first appears in Genesis. When Abraham's servant, um, he invokes God's steadfast love to Abraham in seeking a wife for Isaac. Um, it talks about how God showed steadfast love to Joseph when he was in prison. Um, Deuteronomy says that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And the Psalms, David's Psalms are full of it over and over again. There's the phrase that's constantly repeated, his steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love endures forever. Um, and Solomon then invokes that same steadfast love um, that was shown to David when he asks God to show the same thing to him um, in granting him wisdom. And then the prophets tell how that steadfast love will continue beyond them into the future. Um, Isaiah 16 says, A throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So while the Old Testament is typically about God's steadfast love, um, in the New Testament, it's more about um, us being steadfast. We are called to be steadfast. This is a quality that's, that's supposed to be on us. Um, and some of the most direct teaching on this is in this passage from James. Um, James says that steadfastness is something that comes from trials. It's something that comes from the testing of your faith. It's when you face one of those trials and you stand strong. Um, some of the other words that are associated with steadfastness are um, stable. Paul says in one of his letters, he refers to be, being stable and steadfast. Um, so if, if your life is characterized by, by volatility, by back and forth, by bipolar, that's the opposite of steadfastness. Steadfastness is stable. Um, it's even referred to elsewhere as immovable. Now, the thing about whether, knowing whether something is stable or whether something is immovable You can't know it until you apply force. And that's why steadfastness is a virtue that is observed only under pressure. You don't know whether someone or something is steadfast until it is tested with some kind of outside force. You know, if if you have a, in good times and in bad, you can be loving. Even when things are going great, you can be loving. But if there's there's a guy who's, you know, taking a luxury cruise and sipping pina coladas, you wouldn't say that that guy really has the opportunity to show his steadfastness in those circumstances. Um, and it's in those times when things are good, when things are easy, when there's nothing going wrong, 
and if, if you do well and you, you praise God and you thank God when things are going great, you don't, you don't really get any credit for that. You know? um, what, what credit is, is it to you that when you're not persecuted, you stand strong? It's when you're persecuted and stand strong. That's what you were called to do and called to be. Steadfastness matters when you didn't get the promotion, when you didn't get any sleep, when your kids are sick, when finances are tight, when your friends insult you, when your husband won't finish that home improvement project, or when your wife won't stop nagging you about that home improvement project. These are the sort of things where we typically struggle to be steadfast. Um, we, and we talk about what, what the, the force was that came into our life and how, how we couldn't resist against it. You, know, you wouldn't believe what she said to me. Oh, well, you should just know that I'm, I'm always irritable when I'm hungry. Well, well James, James thinks of steadfastness in, in much more stark terms and much more severe circumstances. Uh, if you look at the, the next part of um, the text that's um, set out on your page there, um, James returns to the theme of steadfastness in chapter 5, um, where he's talking about suffering. And he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we call those happy who were steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Job, Job was not steadfast because he had to endure being hungry or you know, getting four hours of sleep. Um, Job wasn't steadfast because he had to you know, endure his wife complaining at him. He did have to endure his wife complaining at him, but it was after all his wealth had been taken away, his kids were dead, um, and he's covered in boils, sitting in ashes, mourning his life. And then his wife says, bastion of encouragement that she is, curse God and die. And Satan, in that story, said precisely what would be said about a lot of us. That, oh, Job, he's just faithful because his life's going well. Things are good for him, and so naturally he's praising you. But see what happens when you take it away. And what happens, and what does Job say when God takes it away? What is it that makes Job steadfast. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So why is it that Job, even when he's in catastrophic sorrow, why is it that he remains unmoved? It's because of what he is grounded in. It's because of what he is anchored to. You are steadfast. You're unmoved when the thing that you're standing in is stronger than the forces that prevail against it. And so no matter how big those forces are, and Job's were the biggest forces possible short of death, um, Job stood strong because of what he was standing in. And Job says in chapter 19, this was something my dad preached on a couple, couple months ago. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see on my side, and behold, my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. So when the knowledge of who God is and what he has done is the fundamental ground of your being, as it was for Job, you're not going to be moved, whatever comes. Um, this is something where, you know, the, the scriptures use the, the metaphor, um, this is the third text on, on, the, on the sheet there, Jesus uses this as the metaphor of a house built with a foundation. Um, he says that there are, you know, those who hear his words and do them, they're like a man who dug his foundation deep. He laid it upon rock. 
So even when the floods came and the storm broke, the house couldn't be shaken. So when that storm comes in your life, it proves what your foundation is. Do you stay secure, hoping in God, joyful, confident of your deliverance? Or do you wilt, turning toward whatever makes you comfortable, whatever's easy, natural, pleasurable in the moment? Sure, it may be something that everyone can understand. Do you snap at your husband? Do you yell at your kids? Do you click that link that you shouldn't have? Maybe it's not so overt. Maybe it's more something that like you, you stay reasonably calm on the outside, but inside you're just festering with worry and anxiety. And you're listening in that moment to the invitation to curse God and die. But you, you weren't steadfast at all in those circumstances. You may be someone where you can... You can praise God in the good times. You can talk about how he's good when things are going well, when he's doing what you expect him to do, when he is paying out, when he seems like a good investment to you in the here and now. But in those situations, if you only praise him then and you don't praise him when things are bad, then he may have been sort of the banner up on your mast, but he wasn't your anchor. He may have been the nice little crocheted um, frame on your wall that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, which is easy enough Um, to say and put up on your wall and feel pious about. But if he's not in your foundation, it counts for nothing. It's the foundation, the anchor that makes you steadfast. And if you neglect that foundation, it has consequences. So that leads to the second point of why do you need to be steadfast? Now, I don't think that's a particularly hard sell because I think most of us all wish that we were more steadfast. I mean, in many respects, any sin that you have in your life is a lack of steadfastness. You were tempted, you were lured and enticed by your own desires, and instead of standing firm in the knowledge and love of God, you surrendered. And you hate yourself for doing that in the moment, but then you do it again. So maybe you've come to the point in your life where you just sort of accept this state of affairs, where you sort of know your own volatility, you know that you fail under trial, and you just sort of count on the fact that when it's all over, when you make it through this life, that God is going to take you up to heaven in the end. And that's sort of your consolation. But if that's the way you look at it, God still isn't your foundation. He's more like your insurance policy. You know, like if something just goes really bad, if the house burns down, well, at least we can, you know, call State Farm and get a new one. Um, but having an insurance policy isn't something that means that like, oh, we have an insurance policy so we can just like neglect any maintenance. You know, we can have lousy wiring and, you know, leave oily rags and piles around the house. I mean, but that's the way that we treat God sometimes. We say, oh, he's, he's going to deliver me eventually so I can just leave this house in a state of disrepair right now. But the reality is if your house is in that state, if it is festering with mold and rot from the sin that you haven't uh, dealt with, then that foundation is going to rot out. And when the trials come, you're going to fall, and you're going to fall calamitously. So James addresses, he, d- he draws a counterpoint to steadfastness in the second part of the, the first text that's on here. The counterpoint to the steadfastness is the double-minded man. The double-minded man is someone, he doesn't act in faith, but instead he doubts. Because on one day it's, you know, praise the Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But when it comes down to it, when you're, when you're facing long odds, um, or even if it's just something that's slightly uncomfortable, you doubt that he's going to come through, and so you take matters into your own hands. You're double-minded. You trust God when it's easy to trust God, 
But when it's tough, you know who you really got to rely on, and that's you. So you don't know if God's going to provide. Well, you better worry and nag someone. You can't trust that God is going to vindicate you and when, when you did right. So you better yell at someone. You can't trust his promises of blessing for sexual fidelity. So you better take matters into your own hands. What does James say about this double-minded man? Instead of being anchored, instead of being steadfast, he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And what's the natural consequence of that? That person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. You can't expect that you get all the perks of his goodness when you are crumpling under every test. You can't use what's supposed to be the cornerstone. Christ is supposed to be the cornerstone of your life, the foundation. You can't treat it as window dressing and expect your house to hold together. Now, on the positive side, James describes a natural effect of blessing to steadfastness. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Could there be a better promise? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're so often thinking about what we don't have, what we want, um, what others have and we, and we don't, and what we wish we could get our hands on. But we're told that if we're steadfast, we'll lack nothing. Now, don't be mistaken, this isn't a health and wealth promise that you, you t- tell yourself, oh, I've been coveting all my neighbor's possessions, but if I'm steadfast, then I'll, all those possessions will be mine. Um, that things are just going to work out and I'm going to have all, the, all things that are good for me um, if, if I'm steadfast. Remember that Job is the example here. It's, it does not mean it's going to look pretty. Job went through um, a situation that was, you know, Terrible for an awfully long time. It was so grim that his friends were all telling him, you must have done something wrong for your life to be this bad. It's also important to note that even while you know, we know that at the coda to Job, at the very end, he gets it all back. God restores to him everything that was taken away. But the promise of those things being restored wasn't the thing that Job was laying hold of to get him through the trials. Job didn't say, you know, well, I, I know God's going to come through in the end and I'm going to get this all back. I just got to weather this out, you know, sit in the sackcloth and ashes for a few weeks and it's going to be okay. He had his hope in the fact that he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that when, you know, when my flesh and my skin passes away, I know that I'll see God. His hope in being perfect and complete, in lacking nothing, was not in things now getting better. His hope was in the future. And by Job remaining steadfast, the purpose of the Lord will be revealed, as, as, uh, as James says. Um, this is what Paul promises us in Romans when he says that God works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We don't know how he's going to work all things together for good. We don't know what what he's going to do in, these, in the miserable circumstances that we sometimes face to make it better. We don't think, thankfully, he hears us, he listens to us. We can pray to him and we can ask him to make it better, to you know, provide for us, to take away the cancer, um, to take away the troubling circumstances and the injustice that we face. But we don't know how he's going to work it out. What we do know is that he will. And what we have to convince us of this is the record of his steadfast love in the Old Testament. 
you look again through the Old Testament and throughout it, it's referring over and over to God's steadfast love at every point in the story, often to people who are not obeying him, who are living as terrible examples of, of what we ought to be. God nevertheless shows steadfast love and he works through those circumstances. He works his purposes through Abraham, through Isaac, through Joseph, through Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, ultimately through Christ. And James says that we will be blessed if we endure trial. Um, But if the God who accomplished that great work through human history, shepherding his people in their folly and their sin, across ages, across nations, moving in human hearts and from the greatest geopolitical actions of pharaohs and emperors down to the tiniest details that were prophesied that the Messiah would fulfill, like a behold your king riding on an ass's cult, and culminating in the ultimate sacrifice of his son for the sake of our redemption, well, surely he can handle your concerns, your first world problems about the kid's health and about your wife being happy. So how do you get there? How do you lay hold of steadfastness and make it something that where you are confident that you will be able to endure trial when it comes to your life. Well, the first thing you need to do is act like you're someone who knows you're going to face storms. I mean, imagine that you live in Florida or Louisiana, and you know that every hurricane season, you've got to be watching the Weather Channel closely to see you know, where the next storm is going and if it's going to hit you because you're close to the water. Um, and you've seen... Other people's homes get knocked down. Maybe your home's been knocked down before. You make preparations. You act like this is going to come because trials are surely going to come. And so you make preparations to start dealing with those things. You can't just say, you know, if it gets knocked over, you can't say, yeah, I've been meaning to fix that hole in the roof, but, you know, I just couldn't get around to it. You know, I, I really wanted to shore up the foundation. I knew that it was important to have a foundation, but I, you know, I, just, I just let it rot away and it got, it got knocked down. But I, you know, I'm sure insurance will take care of it. Don't be surprised in those situations. If you haven't been doing the spiritual maintenance for your spiritual house, don't be surprised when your little ramshackle squatter house gets knocked down by the storms. Steadfastness is proven in the moment of trial. But the conditions that lead to it, that create it, are developed in the good times. So in the good times when things are going well, Are you living like someone whose house is built on a rock where your fundamental ground is God's promises? If you do, you'd expect that you'd want to be learning as much as you could about those promises. So if you want to be steadfast in that moment of trial, you ought to be studying his word when you're not under trial. If you're marinating in his word, in his promises, those promises will be on your lips and in your heart. And you'll know when you get hit by the trial, however big it is, however small it is, those things will naturally come out of you. And you're going to know that you can be anchored to God's, to God's promises for you. And beyond just you know, doing that affirmative work, you'd also expect that if it was important to you for your house to weather a storm, you'd be keeping up on maintenance. You'd be fixing holes in the roof. You'd be calling the exterminator to get rid of the pests. And that's why it's important for you to confess your sins to God and to those you've hurt. Now, we can all, whatever, wherever position we're in, we can all start being responsible homeowners today and taking care of the problems as they come up. Taking care of, if you sin, confess it. 
immediately, as quick as you can. Bring it to God, bring it to the person you've wronged, and make it right. But it may also be that in addition to those sins that arise going forward, there's a long list of maintenance um, that hasn't been handled, long list of chores. Those sins may have been sitting there, festering, growing mold, contaminating the air, rotting out your floors. Well, the good news is that God, in his free grace, will cover all of this. Every inch of it, every undone chore, he will remediate the mold, he'll repair the roof, he'll kill the rats, termites, and cockroaches in your heart, and you can start speaking with him now about maybe a nice new open concept layout, shabby chic chic decor. Going forward, you can have that because he will pay for everything. It's like one of those HGTV shows where, you know, they bring in someone who's totally undeserving of the renovation and Chip and Joanna Gaines show up and and they take care of everything. And you don't even have to pay for it and do the financing. The bad news about this, though, is you have to have the humility to ask him to do it. You have to admit that your house has been a dump, that you are not Marie Kondo, and that you need to help ask him to step in and handle the project. And not because you deserve it, but because you need it. And in all of this, remember, remember what it is that makes you steadfast. Hebrews 6.20 describes it as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner shrine beyond the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is the fact that he has gone before us, that he has experienced this life and these trials, that gives us the strength to stand when we are tried. Just as we love because he first loved us, we can be steadfast because he was steadfast. Christ himself knows what it means to be steadfast. He came into our world in the flesh. He was tempted in every manner like as we, and yet without sin. And in the moment where he had to undergo the biggest trial of all, it wasn't some first world problem like we deal with. It wasn't even the trial of Job, where he had to lose his wealth and his kids and his health. No, he had to lose his whole life under the greatest injustice that anyone could ever face. And in that moment, that trial, he had the option to walk away. Just like you and I have the option to walk away every time we're tempted. Every time we have to stand against something. We could say, all right, I'm going to just walk away from these commitments I made to God. Um, i got to just take matters into my own hands. Jesus got to that point. He's in the garden and he's praying to God in Luke twenty-two forty-two, And he asks the father, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Because that's what was more important to Christ. He says, if there's any other way to do this, this is so awful, this trial I have to face. I don't want to do it. But I'm committed to doing what you want, God. And if there's no other way, I will do this. That's what we ought to be saying as well. You figured that when when Jesus was being nailed up to the cross, he could have torn out those nails if he wanted to and gone and killed all his enemies with them. But instead, he died for those enemies. 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah spoke of how Jesus would remain steadfast in that moment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I think that, you know, C.S. Lewis um, pictures this beautifully in, in the Chronicles of Narnia um, at the end of the first book when Aslan is going to the stone table to die for Edmund's betrayal. C.S. Lewis talks about it and he says, Lucy and Susan held their breaths waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when he found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Jesus is in the same position. Up on the cross, he's being mocked. They jeered at him. Save yourself, they cried. And he could have. He could have come down from that cross. He said, could have said, you know what? This is not worth it. But he remained steadfast. He listened to his father. Not my will, but thine be done. And in remaining steadfast, like Job, he endured the worst possible answer from God to his plea to take the cup away. Because instead of God delivering him in that moment in taking the cup away, he cries out in the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When it says that his steadfast love endures forever, it is not some throwaway line of stock praise, stock, because that steadfast love came at an inestimable cost to Christ. His death was the culmination of that steadfast love, which began with the promise to Abraham and continued all the way through the New Testament. Jesus, standing still, immovable, fixed, dying for our sins. And that should grip you. When you're faithless, when you feel like Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia, or when you feel like Peter, denying the Son of God three times as he goes to his death, when you do that for every big or little sin in your life, when you're tempted and you listen to yourself instead of listening to him, that is the moment when you are not steadfast. It was because he was steadfast that paid for that sin. You can be forgiven for that sin because he was steadfast when you weren't. And if you think of that in the moment of trial, if you think what he endured and how he remained fixed and know that his grace and his Holy Spirit gives you the power to do the same thing, you will have the confidence to stand strong at the moment of trial. Because Jesus was steadfast and submitted to the shame, to the pain, to the terrible injustice of his death under what C.S. Lewis calls in the Chronicles of Narnia the deeper magic before the dawn of time. Hell could not hold him. Instead, he rose again on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of God. And now at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your steadfast love to us. 
how you've worked it through history, how you've worked in our hearts. I thank you that you empower us to be steadfast in you. And I pray that as, as we're tempted, we'll think of you and resist to your glory. In your son's name, amen.